Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Vance Habner. He was born in 1901 in Jugtown, North Carolina. Through his ministries, Dr. Habner maintained a love for the quiet and simple ways of his more rural past. Eventually, Protestant leaders from many denominations would call Habner the Dean of America's Revival Preachers. He was truly gifted with the ability to phrase a thought in such a way as to drive home a point with absolute effectiveness. Today, Vance Habner presents a sermon on who is Jesus Christ and what does he want us to do? The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. first of the three accounts of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. When our Lord came to earth, he faced paganism on one hand and Phariseeism on the other. And let us never forget that the worst opposition he had on earth was from organized religion, from people who went to church and read the scriptures and prayed in public and were all tithers and lived separated lives and uh, tried to win others and yet never knew the Lord when he came. But out of Phariseeism, there arose the greatest preacher of all time, a Pharisee of the Pharisees to begin with. All his life, Paul was regarded as a religious fanatic by one side or the other. When he started out, he was violently zealous and jealous for the faith of the fathers until he met Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus. He was on that way to put the church out of business. He was breathing threatenings and sorrow. You get the vehemence of it in that very first line. And out to put the church out of business, and then he met the Lord and became a fool for Christ's sake. And spent the rest of his days putting churches in business. And his experience can be summed up in two words. Who art thou, Lord? And then Lord comes first after that. Once you meet the Lord, he must always come first. Lord, what do you have me to do? It was the who-what experience. When you boil it all down, and when sometimes the saints quit their arguing even, and we differ on various points of theology, it gets down to two things. Who is Jesus Christ? And what does he want us to do? That's it. 
When, he, when Paul started preaching, he preached that Jesus is the Son of God. And my Lord himself asked the disciples, who do you say I am? They said, well, so, some say you're this prophet and that. Who do you say that I am? Why, Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And thereafter, the note was, Jesus is the Son of God. At the temptation, the devil said, if thou be the Son of God, command these stones that they may become bread. And in John 9, the blind man was asked by the Lord, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And in Mark 5, the demoniac, What have I to do with thee, thou Son of the Most High God? And the Ethiopian eunuch, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they baptized him. John 19, 7, his enemies said he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. That was the news all the way through. Now the question is, is Jesus who he claims to be? All authority given unto me in heaven and earth. All things delivered unto me of my Father. I and my Father are one. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Before Abraham was, I am. Was he all that? Was he what he claimed to be? Many of you know that C.S. Lewis said a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or a devil of hell. Either this man is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. We can shut him up for a fool and spit at him and kill him as a demon or else fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. He was a theist. He believed there was a God, but he said the sum of all religion was expressed by its best teacher, love God and your neighbor, and contains no mystery. Wonder if he had read, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified of the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And Jefferson said Jesus never believed that he had any other than human excellence. You see, we've been mixed up in America from the very start because we've had a double heritage. We had one from the Puritans and the pilgrims out of the Reformation. And then we had another that sort of came to a head in Tom Paine and Thomas Jefferson out of the enlightenment of years before on the continent. And half of that crowd believes in the perfectibility of human nature and the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. The other believes in the gospel and the church of the twice born and never the twain shall meet. Chuck Colson said either Jesus was God or a raving lunatic. There is less heresy in rejecting him altogether than to remake him into something he wasn't or isn't. You can't whittle Jesus Christ down to your little image of who you think he is. When the rich young ruler called him good master and uh, Jesus said there's none good but God, people have argued about that through the years as though Jesus was disclaiming deity. Well, there's no such thing. He's just saying, are you calling me God or are you calling me just good? We must take him on his own terms. There aren't any other options. Jesus Christ is not standing with his hat in his hand like a marked down bargain on an auction block to be accepted by you on your terms. You're accepted on his terms. 
When the church was having trouble, you remember that Gamaliel got up, and I used to think he made a good speech. Then I found out that he was just a sort of a uh, quizzling, after all, and a fence straddler on this issue. He said, well, we've had movements like this before, and they played out. We've had Thutis, and we've had Judas, and let's see what happens. But my friends, Jesus Christ is not Thutis. Jesus Christ is not Judas. And you don't compare Jesus Christ with anybody. No mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Fairer is he than all the fair who fill the heavenly train. It's fashionable these days to call God in for special occasions. Political campaigns, ball games, business advantages. Helps, you know, to be a church member. Helps in business. Looks good and looks good on your obituary when you're dead. But... uh, Jesus Christ is not on call to lend a religious aura and put a halo on human endeavor. We have a new word that's come around the last few years, additive. Everything's got an additive in it now. Food, medicine, everything's got an additive. Jesus Christ is not an additive to what you already have. Your education, your personality, your prestige. Nicodemus could have said that. He said, I'm a teacher. I'm pretty well versed. Now, if I can just get what he's got in addition to what I've got, I'll have it made. But Jesus said, in effect, I'm not a new page in your old book. We're going to start a new book. You must be born again. You see, that makes a lot of difference. And the rich young ruler, he was a good boy. He had a lot of medals for going to Sunday school every Sunday and all that sort of thing. And stood in well, and I think the boys of the neighborhood despised him because their mothers were always saying, why can't you be like that boy? But anyhow, he thought, now, if I can add eternal life to what I already have, I've got it made. But my Lord said to him, no, you sell out what you've got, and we'll start over. And it's like that all the way through those prospective disciples in Luke 9. The first one said, I'll go with you wherever you go. Sounded good, but Jesus said the foxes and the birds have a place to stay, but I don't. I don't hear any more from that brother. I think that took care of him. I don't think he meant business anyhow. And the second said, I, I'll follow you, but first I must bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach. The third said, I'll go with you, but first I must tell the folks goodbye. Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're going with me, let's go. If you're going to stay here, stay. But the kingdom of God is no place for a man with his face pointed one way and his feet the other. God's not taking people to heaven backwards. If you're going, let's get going. And so he's not an additive, beloved. Uh, These men said, uh, suffer me first. Allow me first to do something else. My Lord said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, here's where the additives come in. And all these things shall be added unto you. You've got to have clothes to wear and food to eat and all the rest of everything. But I'm Alpha and I'm Omega. And between those two come the additives that you must have. There are only two absolutes, the written word of God and the scripture and the living word of God and the Savior. And they're not additives. They're absolutes. And Schaefer's right when he says, if we're going to throw away all our absolutes today, and it looks like we're going to, then the only absolute that's left is us, and may the Lord have mercy on us if we become the absolute. What does he want me to do? You see, there's a corollary. We must accept his terms as to himself, 
And then we must accept his terms about us and what he thinks about us. What he claims to be, what he requires us to be. We can't settle for a modified, abridged, watered-down Christian life that leaves out what I don't want to do and be and lets me be my kind of a Christian. He didn't give me that option. I meet people sometimes who say, in effect, now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going in too deeply in this religion business. I don't mind joining the church, being baptized, and paying my dues, and going when I feel like it. But I'm not going out too deep in this. And I I feel like saying if you're not going all out, you might as well stay out. I'm not marking down the price of discipleship to get a lot of half-hearted, half-time, fair-weather followers. I'm not wasting my time recruiting that kind of volunteers. No dictator ever demanded as much as Jesus, but he has a right to. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. He doesn't want your compliments. He wants your commitment. He doesn't want your smiling condescension to accept him. I agree with A.W. Tozer. I haven't been able to find accept Christ much in the New Testament. I find come, receive, believe, follow, confess. The big point is, will he accept us? Yes, thank God he will if we come on his terms. Him that cometh unto me, I'll in no wise cast out. But if Jesus Christ is who he is, it follows that his disciples will have to be a different breed from the rest of human nature. Today, if we believe the gospel is the foolishness of God, that automatically makes us to this world fools. Billy Graham said Jesus never promised that believers would be anything else than a minority group swimming against the stream of the world's thinking. Those who really mean business are Few, F-E-W, few. And they were called the scum of the earth and a spectacle to the world for the scandal of the cross. How many volunteers would I get today for those three S's? Are you willing to be called the off-scouring of all things, the scum of the earth and the laughing stock to this world and the scandal uh, because of the cross? That means more than glibly singing on Sunday morning to the old rugged cross, I'll ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. God help us. We don't bear it any kind of way, let alone gladly, and then go out to live on the garbage of this world all week and come to church next Sunday and stand up and say, Jesus is all the world to me. Christians are a persecuted minority, scorning the values of this world and living by rigid discipline. There's never been a culture since Christianity began in which a Christian could feel at home. And if you're at home and listen today, that's because that's where you belong. Birds of a feather flock together. And if you're at home in this world and like it, that's, that's your habitat, my friend. We're pilgrims and strangers. We're exiles and aliens. We're not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven. We're citizens of heaven trying to get through this world. You say, well, I, I can't live that kind of a life. Well, who said you could? Of course you can't. There's only one Christian life that's ever been lived, and Jesus Christ lived it, but he wants to live it over in you, if you'll allow him. And that's why Paul said to me, to live is Christ, Christ liveth in me. And that doesn't make you a robot, it doesn't make you an automaton, it doesn't make you a zombie. You're still you, you can make decisions. Uh, Paul said, I still live, yet Christ lives within me. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is right when he says that when you become a Christian, it doesn't change your temperament. If you're the fast-going kind, you'll probably be that the rest of your days. If you're the slow-moving kind, you probably will be, but it changes your heart. That's the thing that matters. 
You see, it calls for everything you have. That unchanged life moves over to the changed life and then to Hudson Taylor's exchanged life. Some time ago, somebody said to a great artist after his performance, I'd give my life if I could play like that. And the great artist said, I did. And so if you're going to live this life, it costs your life. Some time ago, I was in meetings where Van Cliburn attended and played the offertory, and I had a chat with him after the service, and who wouldn't like to play a piano like Van Cliburn, one of the half dozen top concert pianists in the world, but who wants to practice like that? Who would want to go through all that drudgery, not only to get up there, but to stay up there, because if you don't practice, your fingers are soon thumbs and everybody knows it. Chris Everett has made an isolation booth out of her mind on everything but one thing when she plays tennis. Not the crowd, but where to put that ball, and she usually puts it. And when I, when I think of that, if people can go all out for athletics, for music, for what have you, and then I look at the sloppy, slovenly way that the average church member lives today, I'm not surprised we're not making much dent on this world situation. It's more than a creed. It's more than a code. It's more than a ceremony. Christianity, I wish we had started pronouncing all those words, Christ, Christian, uh, Christianity. Sort of keep him at the middle of it. After all, that's what you are if you're born again. You're a Christian, and you know the old familiar arrangement, I-A-N stands for I am nothing. It's Christ. I wish we'd even pronounce it that way, but if you ever meet him and love him and follow him, You can't ever be average again. You can't sit in church so nonchalantly on Sunday. I saw that picture of Jesus of Nazareth, some of half of it. And the only thing I remember now about it is that I think it was Matthew who said to Peter, we can't go back. That's right. If you've ever really started out to follow him, you, you, you can't go back. It's lost all its charm and attraction. You don't have to go around wearing a great big button that says, I am a Christian, carrying a Bible big as a Sears and Roebuck catalog. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Just be one. That's all in the world that's required. I came to Jesus in the foothills of the mountains in western North Carolina one summer. I didn't know much about the plan of salvation. I didn't understand it. And if I could understand all about it, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be much to it if my little brain could comprehend it. I don't understand all about it, but I stand on it. don't understand all about electricity. I'm not going to sit around in the dark till I do. And I came on what I did understand to the Lord. And I remember that very afternoon trying to sing, Jesus, I am my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all of salt or hope, or noon. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. That was before the cheap jingles of the happiness boys came along. And we had this new gospel of prosperity, every Christian a millionaire. Six easy lessons on how to be a big success. Uh, that Horatio Alger preaching that promises healing for everybody and you won't have any trouble. And a lot of dear souls are driven into despair over it. They're told if you're not healed or if you're not a success or something, uh, something between you and God. Sometimes there may be, but that doesn't cover every situation. My Lord had no place to lay his head. 
died the death of a criminal between two thieves. John the Baptist. Why didn't God say to him, you've been so faithful now, I'm going to just get you out of that jail and retire you on a pension? Why didn't the Lord say to Paul, you've been so faithful, I'm going to get you over to the Riviera in a nice little cottage and let you write your memoirs over there? <laughs> Sat around that old jail in Rome waiting to have his head chopped off. And you re you've read Hebrews 11 many a time. You know how right in the middle of all that crowd that marched victoriously over everything, there's another crowd, and others didn't get along so well outwardly. They went through all kinds of trouble, even sown asunder. Have you ever pondered what sort of an... How... I can't take that in, the most agonizing possible way to leave this earth. And yet they were heroes of faith too. Amy Carmichael... If ever there was a precious saint, and yet the last 20 years of her life in agonizing pain that nothing could stop. And yet writing those precious books. The issue is Jesus Christ. Who is he? And what does he want me to do? The gospel's not true. Nothing matters. If it is true, nothing else matters. My friend, Dr. Hill, that great black preacher of Los Angeles, told some time ago about meeting one of his flock, and he said to her, How, how's the family getting along? She said, oh, the children are doing well. said, they got a new job, each of them making good money, got a car apiece, living in a big house. They're doing well. He said, do they go to church? Oh, she said, you know how these kids are. They don't, they don't go to church much, but they're doing well. He said, I looked her in the eye, and I said, they're not doing well. No man can ignore Jesus Christ and do well. You can have the biggest house on the main drag, have a swimming pool so big a herd of elephants could swim in. <laughs> you could have a gold Cadillac like Elvis had, and a yacht big as an ocean liner, but if you don't know Jesus, you're a flat failure in God's book. I heard of an old faithful preacher visiting a wealthy member of his little church. Man had property, every direction. He said to the preacher, now as far as you can see this way, it's all mine. I, as far as you can see this way, it's all mine. This way and that way. The little preacher said, how do you fix this direction? <laughs> That's about the size of it. There's coming a day that'll show us all up and it won't matter whether you lived in the backwoods or on the boulevards. No matter whether you drove a limousine or pushed an apple cart through town no matter whether you got your jewels from Woolworths or Tiffany's, the only thing that'll matter is what did you do about Jesus Christ? We have polls, always taking a poll these days. And there are three classifications, for, against, and undecided. But there are no undecided about Jesus Christ. Because until you've decided for him, you've decided against him. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Adlai Stevenson, senior, said that uh, when he was put on the League of uh, the World Nations uh, staff as a sort of a representative, he said, I had to learn a new word, yo, y-o. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, it can mean yes, it can mean no. You know, we've got a lot of yo people today instead of folks that are sold out to Jesus Christ. A Christian is a who-what Christian. I want to ask you folks this day, 
Do you assent to all that he claimed to be? And do you consent to all he asked you to be? That's the issue. I used to give a lot of invitations in meetings. I'd have one for the unsaved and the unsure and the undedicated, and ever so many, and then invite them forward and they'd come. But I think half of them didn't know what they were coming for. But I found that it's all wrapped up in one proposition. Will you stand to your feet like the Bible says do? It must be visible before men. It must be audible with the mouth and it must be credible with the heart. Why don't we do it in churches like the Lord said do it? And say just this from your heart. I confess Jesus, which means Savior, as my Lord. Not I confess him as Lord. He is Lord whether you ever confess him or not. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. Do you confess him as your Lord? That's what it's all about. I have found that it's a, it's a one move proposition. Nowadays, when I sign my name in the book, I put 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. I like to get back to some of these old timers. Lately, I've been reading along of a morning with my daily light and so on. Old Samuel Rutherford, 1600 saint. And a lot of it, they have to have footnotes at the bottom of the page because the vernacular in those days and the idiom was such that it's pretty hard to read. But he said this, How many of us would have Christ divided into two halves that we might take half of him? We take his office, Jesus, and salvation, but Lord is a cumbersome word. To work out our own salvation and perfect holiness is a cumbersome and stormy north side of Jesus Christ. And on that we hedge, he said, and shift. You see, the coinage of God, beloved, is two-sided. All coinages, you never saw a one-sided quarter in your life. All coinage has two sides. Sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, two sides. The believer and the disciple. The negative and the positive. Peace on earth, I came to bring a sword. That's the other side. Faith and works, trust and obey, it's both. We fill churches. There's a lot of people who are correct on what Jesus is. They believe he's the son of God, died and rose, coming again. And they've never yet asked him, what would you have me to do? They hear and they do not, and they forget the rest of that old verse that says, and I never hear anybody quote all of it. Plenty of people say, well, now, you know, the Bible says, be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, and they stop right there. But the rest of it says, deceiving your own selves. And you fool yourself when you hear it and don't do it. And the Great Commission doesn't say, go out in the world teaching all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you in the end of the age. I left out two words in there somewhere. Uh, I try that on the average congregation. We got a lot of preachers here. We probably have a better passing grade here, I hope, on that. But uh, I left out two words. We're not sent out just to disseminate information, teaching all things commanded, teaching them to observe all things commanded, teaching them to do it. They haven't learned it if they haven't learned to do it. 
And so these people who believe Jesus is the Son of God, they may read devotional books and go from conference to conference, and some of them say, I don't know what's the matter with me. Jesus isn't real. Well, he told you how he makes himself real, John fourteen twenty one. If you keep his commandments, he said, I love him, my Father will love him, and I will make myself real to him, manifest myself unto him. You see, it's coupled with obedience. Nobody wants to hear about obedience these days. And yet many times in the Word of God, faith is... Mixed with obedience as with Naaman. Elisha could have healed Naaman without sending him to the Jordan. Why did he have him take all that trip? And no wonder that Naaman got a little bothered about it. Why do I have to dip in that muddy creek when we've got Abaddon, Farper, and back to Damascus? And then some of the boys who went with him said, Now, if he'd have told you to do some big thing, you'd have done it. It's worth a try. Let's see. And so he went and down once and up, down twice, three, four, five, six. Nothing happened. He must have felt ridiculous. And some of the boys must have said, General, it looks like you've been taken in this time. But one more time did it, thank God, because that was complete obedience. And that blind man, Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, if Jesus could give other people sight without all that, he could have touched him and he would have seen. But this time he coupled a trip to Siloam. And so it's whether it's to Jordan or whether it's to Siloam, God couples faith with obedience every time. And there are others who are strong on the what side of this equation. And they're busy all the time. Church work, bless their hearts. Sometimes preachers get in the fix like that, running around all the time from Dan to Beersheba. They use little church meetings, and half of them don't have anything much to do with redemption anyhow. And in the midst of all of it, they're they're the Martha kind. We need to be a Mary and Martha combination. That's both sides of the coin again. I began with Paul. He said, I was not disobedient. Have you often, I've thought often, why didn't you say I was obedient to the heavenly vision? But he put it in the negative. I was not disobedient. Well, you said it's the same thing. Yes, but it'll bear thinking over. Maybe we need some emphasis today for the sake of these people who are disobedient. But one thing grabbed me some time ago in that second account of his conversion in Acts 22. You have something there that's not in the others. He said, I was blinded by the glory of that light. There was a man knocked out and blinded temporarily by the glory of that light, but the rest of his life he was blinded to this old world and all it had to offer. He'd seen the face of Jesus tell him not of hope beside. He'd heard the voice of Jesus and his soul was satisfied. I don't think Paul was much to look at. I get a lot of comfort out of that. Uh, <laughs> I think once in a while God makes a good looking man just to relieve the monotony. Uh, <laughs> It's it's dangerous to be a good-looking preacher because his profile may raise expectations that his preaching won't justify. It's a little bit tricky. But I I don't think that Paul was much of a speaker. But he was just a vagabond over the face of the earth bragging on Jesus Christ. He healed other people and couldn't get healed himself. Handicapped by a thorn in the flesh that God wouldn't take away. Beset sometimes by... Fightings without and fears within. But all his life he had only one ambition to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. What a Christian. And he was a what Christian too because no other man ever ran up such a record of service. He ended true to the faith and true to the fight and true to the finish. I was down in Florida, a wonderful resort place operated by the Christian Missionary Alliance. Been there for two winters. And there's an old general 
there, General Wilbur, the week I was preaching there, an old man, I, I forget how many presidents of the United States he has known personally, but he fought alongside George Patton over in the Battle of Normandy. We sat one afternoon, I just kept prodding him to, because he really could tell you something. He said, George and I were standing there one day while all that fighting was going on. And they brought along a load of boys who'd been all shot up. Most of them wouldn't live long. And George went over to them, said, how are you, boys? And every fellow who could get his hand up to his head saluted. But all of them said, fine, General. He said, we walked away. And he didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. Got down the road a ways. My curiosity got the better of me. And I looked out of the corner of my eyes and the tears were coursing down that rugged old face. They called him old blood and guts. But that time it got him. When I heard that, I thought about another old warrior. And he'd been pretty well shot up too. Of the Jews five times, forty stripes saved one, thrice beaten with rods, one stone thrice suffered shipwreck, a night and a day in the deep, and journeyings often in perils of waters and perils of robbers and mine own countrymen in the heathen, the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, in perils among false brethren, weariness and painfulness and watchings often, hunger and thirst and fastings often, and cold and nakedness, and besides all that, the cares of the churches. And I believe if Jesus had leaned over the parapets of heaven and said to old Paul, who had no better prospect than a sword... And said, how are you doing? I believe he would have saluted and said, everything's fine. Yeah. The chaplain on Corregidor says that MacArthur came to every one of his services. He said, I congratulated him once. And he said, chaplain, I'm a four-star general, but one of these days I'll go the way of all flesh. He said, you are serving under a seven-star general described in the book of Revelation." And to his kingdom, there's no end. He said, don't you forget that, chaplain. And so, beloved, with a general like that, you can't lose for winning. Our water lose behind us. We're just engaged in mopping up exercises. We're not here for a dress parade on Sunday morning. God's not looking for medals. He's looking for scars. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And there's no substitute for victory. Don't you just be a who Christian. Don't be just a what Christian. Be a who what Christian. Who art thou, Lord? Lord, what will you have me to do? You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.